Take your Bibles out, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This will be uh, the third sermon in a row where we will be at least partially in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, in God's goodness, His grace, and in, in His providence, um, my heart has just really been struck by this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, certainly, it's a profound passage, one that if you have been in the faith for a long time, you have probably heard quoted or come across, but one that there is certainly much riches and goodness to mine, and my hope today is that we can continue to mine from this passage, specifically looking uh, at uh, verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, that we can be blessed today, encouraged as we consider what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 we're primarily, as I said, going to be focusing on, chapter, on verse 2, but we're going to go ahead and read verse 1 and 2. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come today asking for your guidance, for your help, asking for your grace today, Lord, as we open up your word, as we study, as we seek to understand what uh, the Holy Spirit has given us here in Hebrews chapter 12. Lord, we ask that you would do the work of opening our eyes, illuminating this text so that we might see it and understand it correctly. Lord, be with my lips as I speak. Be with the congregation's ears as they hear in all of our hearts as we seek to understand and seek to grow in godliness and become more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our uh, men have been uh, starting our next book in our, our book study series that we've been doing. Uh, we read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul last, uh, kind of this past section of, of time. And Uh, We just now have begun reading Pilgrim's Progress. If you're unfamiliar with Pilgrim's Progress, it is actually the number two best-selling book in the world in history, and it is second only to the Word of God. It's a really amazing book where uh, John Bunyan chronicles uh, the life of this man, Christian, and it is a depiction of the Christian life and, and what it looks like to follow Christ and live in this world and the Uh, obstacles and challenges that there are to overcome, but the grace that is available. And that one of the shortest chapters in the book, and yet one of the most profound, is the chapter where Christian comes to the cross. He comes, and he, he comes to this cross, and if you remember, as Christian comes to the cross, he finds this cross lifted up on a hill with a, a sepulcher, a, a tomb, if you will, underneath the cross, and He comes with a heavy burden on his back, with a a pack, a burden that makes it difficult to walk, that makes it difficult to even approach the cross. And in this amazing chapter, it's only about three pages long, 
the beautiful image of this burden. As, as Christian comes to the cross, what happens is that this, this burden on his back is, is lifted. It is broken free. It falls off and falls until it falls into the grave and he can no longer see it. And in that moment, Christian is freed from his burden. He is freed as he has come to the cross. And John Bunyan writes in the Pilgrim's Progress in this section of Christian, he says this, Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood alive to look, uh, stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent, wa- sent the waters down his cheeks. This is a beautiful image of Christian. After this burden has been lifted and been removed from him as he has been carrying this heavy weight, is now left in awe of what Christ has done for him by the cross. This is Christian's reaction as he realizes what the Lord has done for him to realizing and dwelling on what Jesus has done as he considers the wonderful work of Christ on the cross. And this is what I want us to consider here today. I want us to come the same way Christian is standing in awe of the cross. He stood there a while to look and wonder. It says that he looked Therefore, and looked again, and the more he considered, the more he reckoned, the more he looked at the cross, the more he was struck by the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So when we come today to Hebrews chapter 12, as the author has given us this exhortation, this exhortation to run the race with endurance, to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us and run with endurance. And as we have talked about for the last two weeks, we we come and we set our eyes fixed on Christ as we run this race. We set our eyes fixed not on the saints that have gone before us like we read about in chapter 11. Rather, we are to run this race with our eyes fixed on Christ. And then after the author gives us this exhortation to fix our eyes on Christ and make him the object of our faith, he goes on to give this explanation, this explanation as to why it is that Christ deserves our focus, saying that he is the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is reason for us to set our eyes on Christ, and the author would have us see here what that reason is, and it is what Christ has done for us on the cross. There are four things that the author mentions here about Christ and what he has done for us. And I want us to take today, and and as Christian was, was left there considering the cross, considering what Christ had done for him as his burdens had been removed That is what my hope is that we would come today and do as we consider the cross today as it is presented here for us by the Holy Spirit, that we would come and consider what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, consider the reality of the wonderful work of Christ 
and redemption, and let us stand in awe of that. There are four things that the author mentions here about Christ, and I want us to zoom in on each one of them today and consider their significance. The first one I want us to consider today is the cross that Jesus endured, the cross that he endured. The fact that Jesus endured the cross, as the author says here, is no passing remark, but rather it is an earth-shaking reality. Literally, the earth shook when Christ died on the cross, and the tombs opened up, and even dead were raised out of the grave. The reality of what Christ did for us on the cross could never be overstated. In fact, we could sooner count the stars than, than exhaust what it is that God has done for us in Christ Jesus on the cross. It is this that causes the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to say, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why is that? Why is it that Paul so prioritized the crucifixion of Christ that he would say, there is nothing that I want to know among you before this? If you learn nothing else from me, if no other wisdom is imparted from Paul to his readers, he wants them to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And why is it? Because as he says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross, though folly to those who are perishing... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is seen in the cross of Christ. The power of God to forgive sins. The power of God to redeem humanity. The power of God to save is found in the cross. The reason the cross of Christ matters is because it's by Christ's sacrifice on that cross that sins are forgiven. That the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus was more than just a great teacher. He was more than just an example set for us. Jesus was the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. He was the one who took God's wrath upon himself. And it all happened at the cross. It was at the cross, not simply where Christ died, but where the cup of God's wrath was poured out for sin. Discussions about God's wrath and about the blood of Christ are not popular today. They are out of vogue in most circles today. In fact, if you were at the hymn sing that we had a few weeks ago when we sat around the fire outside and, and worshiped the Lord together, you'll remember the story that Mike told of, of being in the Crystal Cathedral, this amazing kind of tabernacle, this place of, of worship that had been built, and it was beautiful and amazing, but what was one of the requirements that that had been set in place at this place of worship, they said, don't sing about the wrath of God. You can sing about how, how much God loves us. You can sing about his kindness. You can sing about his mercy. Don't sing about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is indeed at time, times a, a bit of a downer. It at times brings sorrow. It at times brings anguish. And yet we recognize that if we're to understand the gospel rightly, we need to understand the wrath of God upon sinners. When we look at the cross of Christ, we need to see the wrath of God poured out. Why? Because if the wrath of God was not poured out upon the cross, then where do we stand? We stand condemned. We stand guilty. We stand left under his wrath 
if it was not poured out upon Christ. Speaking of Christ, Paul says in Colossians 1, 19-20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And then he says this, Making peace by the blood of his cross. It is only by the blood of Christ shed on the cross that peace has come for us. It would make no sense for us to to dwell on, to think on, to sing about peace that we have in Christ Jesus without the cross, without the shed blood of Christ and God's wrath poured out upon him. In spite of all the aversion to this discussion of God's wrath and the blood of Jesus, the Bible makes clear that it is by his blood and only his blood that peace is available. It is in, again, Pilgrim's Progress in that same chapter where after Christian has had this burden lifted and he has considered the cross and he has been brought to tears, the next section says, Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran and that he should give it and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. Here we see the magnitude again of the cross set before us, that it is at the cross of Christ that peace is brought to us, that as the first says, our sins are forgiven. And as the second says, our, our rags are removed and we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then thirdly, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in light of this, we are bade run. Run, Christian. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us here as well. Run and run in light of this, in light of what Christ has done for you, looking to him and looking to what he has done for you on the cross. Because that is where all this happened. That is where sin is forgiven. That is where we are given new life. It is where our burdens are removed. It is where peace is found. It is found only at the cross of Christ. The cross which Jesus endured. Jesus endured the cross. Point number two. We ought to consider here the shame that he despised. It is hard to understate exactly the shame that Jesus experienced. All throughout the process of Jesus' passion, it was shame, shame, shame. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was tormented. He had a crown of thorns placed upon his head over and over again. The mockery, the shame that Jesus felt was nothing to sneeze at. And I think we, we understate it for various reasons, but you know, I think we, we, we forget the fact because of our, the artwork that we see, because of the way we, we sanitize it, we think that Jesus had some sort of clothing on on the cross, but he did not. Jesus was crucified naked. The text says that Jesus despised the shame. This probably is not saying that he despised the shame in the same sense the way we think of something being despised, that he, he hated it, he, he didn't like it, though I'm certain he did not enjoy it. 
When the Holy Spirit says that he despised the shame, it means that he counted it as nothing. It means that he considered the task and the glory of God that would result in light of this, that he boldly and without hesitation took on that shame, took on the shame that was inherent in the task. And not only did he take it on, he thought of it as nothing. In light of what God had called him to do and what would result, he said that the shame is not worth considering. And we need to make sure that we don't hear this and begin to think that that the shame that he faced was no big deal. Consider Adam and Eve in the garden. How did God create Adam and Eve? We see at the end of Genesis chapter 2 the amazing and beautiful statement that God created Adam and Eve and they were both in the garden and what? They were naked and unashamed. They were naked and they were unashamed. But then in the very next chapter, what do we see in Genesis 3? After Adam Adam and Eve sinned, after they eat of the fruit which God had commanded them, do not eat, immediately what happened? They saw their nakedness, nakedness. And what did they feel? Shame. They felt shame instantly and instantly sought to cover themselves, to clothe themselves in order to cover the shame of their nakedness. And yet, it is not a, an inconvenient, it is not simply an irony that Christ is now seen on the cross naked, taking on the shame that is ours, the shame that resulted in Genesis at the fall, the shame that is rightly due us. And church family, in this life, we, we still experience shame to an extent. We still experience the, the, the shame, the Uh, the mocking that comes with being a Christian in this world. It is inevitable. All those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. We'll, We'll experience shame. We will experience mocking. But church family, that mocking, that shame is only temporary. We can look forward to the day when we stand in the presence of God and though we might face shame before this world, Once we are united to Christ, once we are in heaven with the Lord and we stand before God, how will we stand? Ashamed? Absolutely not. We will stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness and shame will be gone. The shame that Christ took for us on the cross, we no longer have to face again. We no longer have to fear the Lord. We no longer have to fear standing in shame, but shame is ultimately going to be removed from us altogether. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Jesus Christ despised the shame, took it on himself, and thought of it as nothing so that we might be free of our shame, so that we might be free of our guilt, so that we might be free of condemnation. The third thing that we see in this passage as we go back to the beginning is we ought to consider the joy that is set before him. As previously stated, Christ is to take our central focus. He is to be the primary thing that we set our gaze upon, that we fix our eyes on. He is to be the motivation for how we run this race. But the author tells us here, answers the question, what is Christ's motivation? What is it that motivated Christ to endure the cross, to despise the shame? And that question is answered in the scripture for us. His motivation to endure the cross and 
despised the shame was the joy that was set before him. That is what drove him. That is what motivated him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy discussed here that is set before Christ could be described in various ways. Certainly, it could be rightly described as the glory of God, that it was the joy of bringing glory to the Father that motivated Christ, that drove him, and certainly that would not be a false statement that is true. But specifically, as Jesus looked to the cross and considered what he was about to suffer, the cup that he was about to drink, the shame that he was about to endure, There is something specific in mind here. The writer seems to have in mind here a specific outcome from these events that was going to be brought about. That was going to be brought about by the cross, by the taking on of this shame, namely the redemption of God's people. It was the redemption of his people that brought Christ joy. It was the joy of that and accomplishing God's plan of redemption for us that Jesus saw and was motivated to go forward in faithfulness, go forward and complete this task, task, task which God had given him. It could be rightly and correctly stated then that the joy that motivated Jesus to endure the cross, to take on shame, was the joy of saving us. Charles Spurgeon says, what was the joy that was set before him? Oh, it's a thought that mounts a rock. It takes a heart of iron to move. The joy set before Jesus was principally joy of saving you and me. This was the joy set before Christ. The joy of saving you and me. And the more we we confess our sin before the Lord, the more we examine ourselves and, and recognize our wickedness, our sinfulness, Are we not left going, why? Why would Jesus care to save me? The answer is, for for God's glory, the glory of God. In the same way the Apostle Paul was such a wretched sinner, in fact, a terrorist, one who was specifically hunting down and killing Christians, and ultimately was brought to faith and became the most the most prolific evangelist evangelist and missionary the world has ever known, all for the glory of God. All of this, the reason that the Lord chose to save you and chose to save me and that Christ was motivated to complete this task of redemption was out of his great love and his great kindness for us. Not because of anything wrought in us, not because the Lord saw us as some sort of diamond in the rough that just needed a little bit of refining. We are not diamonds in the rough. We are dung we are filth we are dirt and yet god in his love and kindness having created us in his image said i am going to save them i am going to redeem this people i am not going to leave them in their sin when the lord saw adam and eve ashamed hiding their nakedness in the garden he had every right to crush them right then and there to set all of his wrath upon them in that moment and to be done with it right then and there and yet does he no Instead, he sets his kindness and his grace and his mercy upon them. And indeed, even then and there in Genesis 3, promises redemption in the midst of this shame and guilt. It was for this joy that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. 
And then the fourth thing that we ought to consider is the seat that he has taken. Our text concludes here that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This phrase has a couple of implications for us. One implication of this phrase is that it points us to the continuing work of Christ that he is now doing on behalf of us, on behalf of of his people, as he works to intercede for us, as he mediates for us, indeed, as the Apostle Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we see here from this passage that he is seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. He is still working out redemption on our behalf. The work has been accomplished and now it is being applied as Christ intercedes for us each and every day. As we sin, as we've sinned this past week, as we have sinned yesterday, as we have sinned likely even this morning, Christ has been doing the the work of interceding for us. But there's another implication of this verse as well. The fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It speaks to the quality and nature of the work that Christ did, the work of redemption, of the atonement. His atoning work on the cross is no longer in progress. It is not partially won. The weight of this phrase indicates that it is totally and utterly complete. This statement harkens back to what we have already heard of Christ throughout the book of Hebrews, even starting in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The motif of Christ as our great high priest is seen all throughout the book of Hebrews, starting there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. But unlike all other priests who came before him, Christ was the only one that this could ever be said of. That he completed the work and then did what? Sat down. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this. And every high priest stands daily at his service. Stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Consider this exhortation that is being given to us, this beautiful word and reality that is being declared to us here in Hebrews chapter 12, as we have just been told, run, run the race, run with endurance. He is taking time here to point to us to point us to the finished work of Christ. When he died on the cross, what did he say? He did not say it is begun. Redemption is now started. Now see it to to the end. Christ said on the cross, it is finished. There is nothing more that needs to be added to the completed work of Christ. There are no more sacrifices that need to be made for the great high priest has made for one time the sacrifice for all sin and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he sit down? Because the sacrifice was complete. No more sacrifices need to be made. Our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Not partially, not started to be. They have been completely and entirely forgiven, cleansed. 
There is nothing more that needs to be done for you or for me to be righteous than to unite ourselves by faith to Christ Jesus. To take part of this finished work of Christ on the cross. All those who are united to him by faith have no need to work, have no need to to put in effort to earn God's favor, to earn righteousness, to earn salvation. We are not progressively becoming more and more righteous so that we can hopefully stand before God and be declared righteous. By faith, we, like Abraham, are declared righteous. We are counted righteous because the sacrifice that Christ made was for us and it was enough. His righteousness is granted to us and our sin is given to him to be paid for on the cross and it was paid in full. This is the one time whenever I am actually a pretty big fan of participation trophies. Because for all those who are united to Christ by faith, all of those who are participating in him and his finished work on the cross and his atoning work, who are united to him, who in him are striving out of the finished work that he has accomplished, all of us win. All of us receive the prize that is salvation, not based on how well we ran or how well we now run or how often we trip or how often we fall, but based on the fact that we are united to Christ and we are running out of his victory. It is by that that we take hold of victory. It is that by we claim righteousness. It is declared to us not something that we earn. If you are trusting in Christ, Christian, the Lord sees you today as righteous. It is a reality that is true of you now, not something that you have to earn. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He no longer stands making sacrifices, for there's no more sacrifices to be made. Your sins in Christ Jesus are forgiven. As we conclude here, it's, it's necessary to recognize that the Holy Spirit, as he has directed our attention here now to the work of Christ in Hebrews 12, I think it's always a good idea when we are presented with the cross of Christ to, like Christian, just take a moment. Consider this reality. Consider the work that has been presented here before us. If you have read much of the Psalms, you might see a little word in the Psalms that appears, the word selah. And it's largely unclear what this word selah means, but by and large, it is, it is presumed that this word selah is, is put into these pieces of poetry, these writings, indicating for us that this is a time when we are to stop, when we are to consider what has just been said, dwell on that, consider it, measure it. And I think if I were to to put the word selah somewhere in the book of Hebrews, I think here in Hebrews chapter 12 after verse 2 is a good place to put it, where he has just declared to us that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, all for the joy of saving people like us. Selah. Take a moment. Think on this. Don't skim past this too fast. Zoom in on this. Dwell on this and let it influence you. Yet it, let it flood over you and pour grace over us that we so desperately need. I think after a passage like this, it would be appropriate to say, Selah. 
and consider this for a moment and to praise God in light of this reality. This is an appropriate response to what the author has just given us here in this particular place in the letter. After he has just walked us through the, the list of all these Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11 that have run their race, that have done so by faith, and now here we are told, don't fix your eyes on them, but fix them on Christ. Because which one of these saints ever endured the cross for your sins? Which one of those saints was ever able to remove guilt or remove shame? Which one of them finished the work of the high priest? None of them. Only Jesus has done that. And only Jesus is worthy of our fixed gaze. It is because of him that we have hope. It is because of him that we have faith. It is because of him that we can endure conclude with the words that Christian sings after this joyous moment of having his burdens lifted at the cross, of dwelling on the cross. He says this as he leaves, says, then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? There must be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Church family, if you are today united to Christ by faith, then this is true of you. Christ has been put to shame for you. Christ has died on the cross for you to pay the price for your sin. And if you are here in this place today and you are still striving, you are still wondering if you have done enough, your eyes are still fixed on what you are doing and how well you are performing rather than fixed on what Christ has done for us, then you are running in vain. You are working in vain. Fix your eyes on Christ and his finished work on the cross. Take part in his righteousness that is imputed by faith and then run and rest in that. Let's pray.